Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Slaves and Sultans podcast. The last time we left off with a narrative which my apologies was a long long time ago. The sultan of some 44 years Giasuddin Balban was dead. In 1287 he had died a broken and probably depressed man and left some pretty big shoes to fill if you recall his heir apparent the prince mahmud had been killed a year earlier while fighting the mongols and so the natural successor to balban was his second son dogra khan now uh I'm aware that I'm probably butchering the name but bear with me Bugra Khan was something of a character I must say when his father ill and aware that he was dying summoned him to come to Delhi he definitely put up a lot of resistance making one excuse or the other to stay away when balban lost his patience and ordered him there he reluctantly agreed and using the first opportunity available he slipped away to bengal when balban seemed to get a little better he was on his way to lucknowti when the news of his father's death reached him along with letters from the chief nobles which went along the lines of well the king is dead long live the king we are all very sorry now would you please come and take the throne in delhi to which bugra khan presumably replied thank you very much yes my father was a great influence he was a great ruler yada 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 uh, thank you for the kind offer but no thank you i am perfectly fine where i am in bengal this decision of bugra khan to not take the throne even when the nobles were offering it to him has puzzled historians across the centuries i mean people were willing to kill each other for the throne and here was a man who when presented with the throne on a platter simply chose to walk away the chief source for this period ziauddin barani does not attribute any particular motive for bugra khan's actions but some have speculated that this might have been a wise move on the part of bugra to escape the veritable viper's nest that delhi was whatever the case his refusal left the turkish nobles in delhi in a right old soup in an earlier time it is not inconceivable that the nobles of the sultan all of them slaves or former slaves would probably have had a bit of a race could get their bottoms on the throne first and whoever managed to keep it there for the longest would eventually become the sultan but times had changed and unfortunately balban had refused to change with the times if you may recall 
by the time balban came to the throne the mongols had largely occupied central asia and the supply of turkish slaves had dried up the result was that the ilbarite turks who formed the original slave core of the ghurid and later sultanate armies were steadily shrinking as many of them grew old and died and and many more were killed during balban's many purges this left the turks as a minority with an extraordinary amount of power power that other groups were just waiting to seize for themselves this was a fact that the nobles were aware of uh, when iltutmish had created his famous group of 40 or the turkani jahiran the understanding between them had been that they were all equals and while one person might be sultan power rested with the body as a whole this of course balban had trodden all over when he had his rivals murdered when he came to power and this left the turks in a rather awkward position on one hand they could elevate one of themselves to the throne but inevitably that would lead to conflict within the group as uh, everybody was considered an equal and so putting one person above the rest would inevitably lead to frayed tempers on the other hand if they did not manage to put a new sultan on the throne there was the very real possibility of mutinous chiefs and governors of other ethnicities deciding that they would take a shot at it and in the resulting civil war the already outnumbered turks were surely going to be defeated so this left them with just one option which was to elevate one of balban's family members to the throne the most obvious choice being his son bugrak khan but given that this son was for some reason choosing to walk away from the throne the next in line were balban's grandchildren the eldest of these kai khosrow was the son of the crown prince mahmud and had replaced his father as the governor in samana which lay in punjab on the frontier between the sultanate and the mongol empire and the second was burka khan's own son kaikubad now both of them had grown up in the household of their grandfather and had lived under his direct supervision which meant that they probably had pretty harsh lives uh, none of the princely pleasures of the palace for them however kaikusro it would appear had already made himself rather unpopular with the nobles possibly because he actually showed some spine to rule on his own the second of balban's grandchildren kaikubad was the son of bugrak khan and he ziauddin barani tells us was a far more likable character and reading between the lines 
also a far more pliable character. So naturally, the Turks coalesced around Kaikobad with the powerful Kotwal of Delhi managing to talk Kaikhusro into marching to Lahore instead of coming to Delhi immediately and therefore ensuring that he was nowhere near the capital when Kaikobad was raised to the throne. At this point, I'd like to take a pause and wonder what Bugra and wonder what Bugra Khan was even thinking of. If his idea was to escape the politics of Delhi and set up his own dynasty in Bengal, why would he leave his eldest son in Delhi amidst the very vipers that he wanted to get away from? And if not, then what was stopping him from taking the throne for himself? I suppose we'll never know the exact reason, although I must say I'm somewhat tempted by the answer that Zia Barani hints at, which was that uh, Bura Khan was a bit of a daft guy and uh, not prone to taking the best of decisions. Well, whatever the case, within a few days of uh, Balban's death in 1287, Kaikobad had been raised to the throne as Sultan Muizuddin, and most of the nobles, at least in Delhi, had sworn allegiance to him. Conveniently, within a few months, his elder brother Kaikhusro had been surrounded and died rather mysteriously in captivity, leaving no rivals for the throne. Kaikhusro was in many ways a good candidate. Brought up in the strict household of his grandfather, he was polite, soft-spoken, cultured, well-versed in uh, Persian literature uh, and religious law. He had everything that a semi-divine sultan successor of Balban would be expected to have, except perhaps decisiveness. Furthermore, I can't really blame the lad for what happened next given that he was 17 when he came to the throne and after what I would imagine was a pretty drab life uh, under his grandfather suddenly found that he could have all the pleasures in the world if he so desired and as Zia Barani puts it, the court quickly descended into uh, a place of eternal merrymaking with women and wine abounding. This was partly encouraged by many of the Turkish nobles at court, particularly a certain Nizamuddin among them. Before long, Kaikubad was turning up at court only irregularly and even then barely sober and was leaving more and more of the day-to-day -day ruling to Nizamuddin and his men. But to his credit, old Nizi did keep things together. He did put down rebellions. He did ensure that the administration ran smoothly. And he did ensure that the treasury was full. But 
Nizamuddin was himself one of the group of 40 and naturally people began to resent how much power he held. It was roughly around this time that the young Sultan's father, Bugra Khan, began to be pelted with letters from Delhi telling him of his son's behavior and begging him to intervene. Initially, Bugra Khan refused but eventually gave in and decided to meet his son and give him a bit of the old pep talk. So he marched from Lucknowti while his son marched from Delhi and they decided to meet midway on the banks of the river Sarayu. The meeting itself presented multiple problems to this highly ritualized court that Balban had left behind. For one, Kaikobad was the Sultan and technically Bugra Khan was his vassal, which meant that it was Bugra Khan who had to cross the river and come to his son. But Bugra Khan being the father, by Islamic and Turkish traditions, was the senior peer and so it would be expected that Kaikobad would cross the river to go to his father. Uh, so this led to an impasse of a few days where people tried to figure out what exactly had to be done until Bugra Khan decided that, all right, I'm going to cross the river and go to my son. Zia's account of the meeting is, I must say, honestly, uh, a little ridiculous because there seems to be quite a lot of weeping going on where they meet in the morning, weep, have breakfast, weep again, have lunch, weep again, then have a bit of entertainment, go back to their camps. Meet the next day, weep a little more, and you get the point. At the end of this three-day summit, if you will, Bugra Khan is supposed to have sat his dear son down and given him a right old lecture on how to be a good king. And according to Zia, at least, uh, he lifted most of it off from a lecture that he himself had been given by Balban before his death. He gently chided his son for being overindulgent and told him that as a good Muslim monarch, he had to uh, live in moderation and be an example to his people and blah, 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 blah. Finally, ending with the declaration that you know, he wished nothing but the best for his son and the Sultanate. As they parted, uh, Zia reports that Bugra Khan whispered in uh, Kaikubad's ear, saying, Get rid of old Nizi and anyone else like him. By all accounts, this meeting seems like just another meeting between father and son and certainly uh, the writer and poet Amir Khosro took it to be that turning it into a highly romanticized story um, perhaps I, although I don't know quite how having more weeping and more of the uh, heart-wrenching lines of Persian poetry flowing around 
but there are a few details that tell us that this might have been rather less rather less of a weeping session and more of something of a diplomatic meet because at the end of it when both father and son withdrew to their respective capitals it is interesting to note that even ziabarani says that they withdrew with a declaration that both were sultans not owing allegiance to each other that is to say from now on bengal was an independent sultanate free of delhi's influence it must also be noted that both father and son marched to the sarayu with both their armies which definitely does suggest that they were some sort of friction and the possibility of hostilities was always there on the horizon so one does really ask that if this was only about giving the son a good lecture why would both men be marching with their armies well i'm afraid we'll never know so we are going to assume here that it was just that the young sultan marched away having made up his resolve to follow his father's advice and and let's just say that his journey lasted longer than his resolve belly had reached delhi when we are told by brani that his attention was caught by a particularly good looking young lad who sang some wonderful persian verses which had the entire court uh, possibly ogling at him and what followed was basically one long party back to his capital and then there was the after party which was simply more partying for everybody for several months after he was back this of course did not go unnoticed in the provinces as it is the deal he had reached with his father would have left a lot of nobles wondering if you know maybe they could carve out a new territory bit of territory for themselves and uh, become independent of delhi and now the king was busy uh indulging himself the field was open for others to take over in the midst of this the one person who was somehow managing to keep things together nizamuddin was poisoned or so we are told by barani and then all the vassals basically went potty each one tried to seize par and two in particular succeeded i'm not going to burden you with their names because they're not going to last very long uh but the important part is that they then drew up a list of people they needed to eliminate a pretty daft thing if you're trying to seize par you really do not want to be giving people advance notice but it seems that they not only drop a list they also left that list lying around uh for others to come to know of it the top of that list was a certain firuz khan an afghan of the khilji tribe 
who had migrated to India after the Mongol conquest of uh, what is today Afghanistan. And he was the commander of the armies in Delhi. And that was important because that was the army closest to the capital. And therefore, anybody who commanded it had an advantage over the other nobles. Of course, as soon as he found out about it, Khilji legged it from Delhi and uh, had his army mass at Gyaspur, which even traditionally had been the site where the army would gather before marching off. He then marched into Delhi, defeated the few forces still loyal to the Turkish generals, and then uh, dithered. As we'll see, this tendency of, of Firuz to dither at the last moment and not take the decisive step would come back to bite him later, but for now, nothing of serious consequence happened. By this time, we are told by Barani that the Prince Kaikobad had already become very sick. He attributes that to all the excessive partying, but we may never know. He says that by the time Firoz entered Delhi, Kaikobad was already on his deathbed and was barely a skeleton. Firuz decided to help him along and had him smothered in bed a few days after arriving in Delhi. He then placed himself on the throne and took and took the title of Sultan Jalal Uddunia Waddin Hilji, or as we shall call him, Jalaluddin Khilji. He did what any new claimant to the throne did. He parceled off important iktas to his family members and supporters, appointed them to high positions, uh, gave them rich gifts, and in a move that definitely surprised a lot of his own followers, he pardoned many of the old Balbani nobles and reinstated them into power. That in itself wasn't a bad idea. They were experienced and without a figurehead to rally around, they weren't really much of a threat to Jalaluddin anyway. That was not the message that his supporters got. For them, this was a sign of weakness on his part. Surprisingly, even the Balbani nobles whom he had forgiven took it to mean just that. Within months of his coming to power, one of the nobles had rebelled and his army had had to march out to crush him. Now, Khilji was no indecisive commander. He had fought against the Mongol uh, invasions and was a veteran in war. Um, the few revolts that came up after his reign were all quickly crushed. But each time he showed the same lenience to the rebels, executing only their leaders and that too very reluctantly, while allowing most of the less important nobles 
back into court. If this wasn't enough, the next few steps that he took would, would reinforce to all around him that he was not by any means a decisive ruler. Having established himself well in Delhi, he sought to expand into Rajasthan and retake the territories that had once been ruled by Balban. He marched all the way to Rantambur, but seeing the formidable fortifications of the city, he simply declared that uh, the city was not worth even the hair on a single Muslim's head, ordered his army to march back. Which doesn't go down very well in an age when the sultans were, before everything else, holy warriors conquering new lands for Islam. Later, a conspiracy was discovered against him, led by his own vizier, and even then, he refused to punish them and had them only exiled to more distant iktas rather than executed as his closest supporters advised him to. All of this did not go unnoticed and one person in particular took this very, very seriously and that was his ambitious young nephew, Ali. Ali had been assigned the Ikhtha of Kara, uh, which is in the middle of the Gangetic Plains. It bordered the lands of the Paramaras of Malwa and at that time controlled the nearby cities of Allahabad and Gwalior. Now, Ali was as unscrupulous as he was ambitious and decided that he would be a better sultan than his uncle. But for that he needed an army and for an army he needed money. So he turned south and he saw the fabulous riches of Devagiri. Now if you will recall in the last episode I had spoken about how the Deccan was rich at first glance but once conquered, it would yield significantly less revenue than the North. And so, while it certainly yielded a goodish amount at the beginning, with time, the Deccan would become a drain on the central treasury. But this was the beginning, and when Ali turned south, um, we can, we perhaps should picture his eyes turning into uh, giant medieval dollar signs, and figuratively speaking. And so he decided that he was going to, going to help himself to some of it. And since this was, in his mind, the first step of rebellion against his uncle, he had no intention of seeking permission from his uncle to do so. Now, this was a major breach of rules because a military campaign could only be authorized by the Sultan. 
nonetheless ali left his brother in kara to make excuses to the sultan for ali's absence and took a small army and marched south crossing the vindhyas now this force was tiny by most accounts likely no more than a few thousands and against him was lined the yadava forces of devagiri uh, perhaps numbering in several hundreds of thousands but alauddin had the element of surprise on his side now the yadava king had his spies in delhi who had reported back to him that the sultan jalaluddin wasn't really the expansionist types and after the incident at rantambore had led him to believe that there wasn't going to be an invasion from the sultanate and so when news arrived of a small force uh, of turks having crossed into his territory he decided that you know one nice swat at it uh and a decisive defeat would help to reinforce jalaluddin's resolve to not launch new campaigns and so had the imperial army march out under his son it so happens that the small force that he heard about was actually a diversionary force sent by alauddin while a slightly larger force under him were riding at breakneck speed straight for the capital so when he arrived outside the capital of devagiri there were no imperial forces left within the city to defend it so even before the city could close the gates the turks were in and the yadava ruler ramadeva was forced was forced to seek refuge within the citadel alauddin's men thoroughly plundered the city but he lacked the numbers to storm and take the citadel so he did a bit of good old bluffing where he told Ramadeva that this was only the vanguard of an army of some 20000 strong which was expected to arrive any day and Ramadeva panicking entered into negotiations he was to pay up a huge sum he would remain as the uh, raja of devgiri but he would have to acknowledge nominal suzerainty of the sultanate and pay an annual tribute while this was going on his son arrived with the main army and seeing the turks already within quickly surrounded the city and set up a siege this left alauddin in something of a quandary thankfully for him the raja ramadeva urged his son to respect the deal that he had just struck and told him about the supposed army of 20000 that was coming to relieve uh, the turkish forces and although his son did not really swallow that story this made the way into his camp and when alauddin launched a small sortie one night out of the city uh, many of the yadava forces panicked and believed that this was the force of 20000 and fled uh, basically leaving the city again undefended 
so the other ones had no other choice but to renegotiate a deal with predictably higher prices to be paid and allow the in return to kara with his pockets just bursting with gold from devagiri of course by now it had been a few months and it was impossible to hide his absence from his uncle so on his return allowed the naturally expected stern action from his uncle and perhaps even execution since this could be seen as an act of rebellion certainly the wazir of the sultanate ahmed chap who was jalaluddin's closest adviser warned him precisely of this and and urged him to have his nephew arrested and brought to delhi and tried for treason but jalaluddin was the more trusting sort and didn't quite take ahmed chap that seriously so when a note arrived from alauddin uh, conveying his supposed anguish at his disobedience and uh, guilt and remorse jalaluddin naturally swallowed it hook line and sinker alauddin went on to say that unless jalaluddin came to kara to absolve him of his sins personally that alauddin was going to commit suicide ahmed chap again warned him that this was likely to be a trap and that he shouldn't go but well jalaluddin was jalaluddin and he decided to go as he approached kara messengers from alauddin's camp arrived and told him that alauddin would meet him on the opposite banks of a river and that he should come un- he should not he should come unarmed since otherwise the prince would be spooked and uh, would believe that he had come with guards to have him killed again given that by now it was accepted court protocol that the princes and officials crossed over to where the sultan was and not the other way around this should have made jalaluddin suspicious of ali's intentions but again I mean how thick can you possibly be to swallow something like that well jalaluddin swallowed it he crossed over without a guard was unarmed and made his way to his nephew's tent where ali feigning great guilt and remorse uh, fell at his uncle's feet begged him for forgiveness and when his uncle uh, basically went along the lines of oh no 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 you're my nephew i mean how can you do wrong and how can you you know ever believe that i would allow any harm to come to you and yada 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 had lifted him up and uh, hugged him and behind his back alauddin then made a gesture to his own guards and as soon as Jalaluddin drew away one of them stepped forward and struck him with a sword uh, Jalaluddin was injured but not quite dead and he attempted to make a run for it shouting all the time ali what have you done you traitor ali but ali's other men pounced upon him pinned him down to the ground and 
uh, hacked him to death. As I'm sure I don't need to remind you, Ahmed Shah had warned they probably would. And once again, I quote the delightfully descriptive Ziauddin Barani when he says that Alauddin then had his uncle's head chopped off and paraded through the main cities. And even before the blood had stopped dripping from it, he had crowned himself Sultan and taken the title of Alauddunya wa Adin, or as we know him, Alauddin. Horribly gory stuff. That, uh, but then again, this is the medieval period. Then, as Barani says, Alauddin marched to Delhi with a sword in one hand and the gold of Devagiri in the other, bribing anyone and everyone he could to join him and those he couldn't, he promptly had done away with. So by the time he arrived in Delhi, he wasn't the most popular of men, but he was certainly the richest around. And so for the time being, nobody was inclined to uh, say anything against his seizure of the throne. He then went through the usual rituals of having his uncle's uh, male relatives all put to the sword so that they couldn't challenge him. And then he appointed his own loyalists to high positions. And so begins the reign of one of India's most notorious uh, rulers in recent years, one of our favorite uh, villains, but certainly a far more comp complex character than he is, is made out to be in popular imagination. So next time, join me as we begin the reign of Sultan Alauddin Khilji as he faces off against the Mongols, attempts market reforms, and now that he had tasted the gold of Devagiri, he undertakes more expeditions to the south, opening up the Deccan for the Turkish conquests. Thank you all for joining me. Do check out the website where I have put up maps. The link is in the description of the podcast. I'm happy to announce that the podcast is now up on Apple Podcasts as well. And if you are listening to it there, please do consider leaving comments and reviews. That's highly encouraging. Also, do consider leaving likes and comments on the main website. I read all of them many multiple times. And that's largely what keeps me going. I'm also happy to announce that the, I now have an Instagram page. Uh, the link again is in the description where I do occasionally put up snippets of historical trivia, uh, interesting things that I come across. I don't claim that a lot of it is original, but I still think that they are pretty cool. So put them up. So do check that out as well. Thank you again for listening. And have a good day.